Hello, and welcome to the What's Next podcast. My name is Liz Smith, owner of Liz Smith Law, and on this show, I share conversations to investigate building and leaving your legacy, estate planning for young families, supporting aging loved ones and parents, and other topics around aging, death, and other life transitions that will affect each of us. This is your source for hard-to-find resources in Southeast Alaska and beyond. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get each and every episode of our show. Hi, and welcome to What's Next. With me on today's show is Shauna O'Sullivan, and she is the president of the Foundation for End-of-Life Care. And I have, well, I recently spoke for the organization for a presentation and became aware of it a couple of years ago as I was starting my estate planning um, practice. And it's fascinating. So I'm very excited to have Shauna join us today. And uh, well, welcome. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm excited. And as I thought about where to start, Shauna, I, I think there's no better place to start than to ask how you became involved with the Foundation for End-of-Life Care. What led you down that path? Yeah, well, this is actually my second year, maybe going into third year with the Foundation. I was invited onto the board by Bruce Wyrock, and we've known each other through the community for many, many years. Um, but I think he he recognized that I had gone through the loss of my husband and at a young age and he um felt like it would be a good opportunity for me to be a part of this organization um it's a smaller board and it's all volunteer and i'm the youngest person on the board at 47 now um so it was kind of a new experience for me and and it's been really rewarding was it your first board experience well no i worked through the university and um and i've been involved in a couple boards as a parent but this was uh the first one that i was i was actually invited to be the president on year two um but this one was just really close to home. It was the first one that I served just out of my own personal um, passion and motivation. I feel like I didn't know a lot of people who went through being a widow like I did at my stage in life with young kids. And I think for many of us, especially in this society, it becomes a real shocker when we avoid that subject for so long in our lives and, and suddenly we're faced with it. We don't really know what to do. Um, and so, yeah, death is even though, right. I find even colleagues of mine, when I use the word, they want me to, they suggest I change (laughs) what I'm thinking and it's very interesting. Yeah, and I'm a very outspoken person. I think Bruce knew that. Um, and I just like, I love to share my story. But that was one thing that I think still compels me is this, this idea that I feel like it's something we should be very comfortable to talk about because it's so hard to process um, on our own. 
Yeah, and I there's so much here, Shauna, but would you be willing to share what happened to your husband? You said he died at a young age. You had young children. Yeah, um, I he was 47 years old, so I guess he was the age I am now, and um, he was a healthy young man, very active, um, outdoor kind of person, and he collapsed at work one day and um, they found a brain tumor and it was diagnosed as terminal pretty early on. So that really changed our lives on a dime. Um, and I remember seeing the scans at the emergency room and saying, you know, to my sister, we're going to lose everything and then he's going to die. And I didn't really know I was saying that, but it was just that overwhelming feeling of worst case scenario that um, we were facing and it didn't feel real. So it was about nine months of treatment and the world stopped. We went, we mm. took the kids, we went south. Um, he had standard treatment. So we had surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and that was a whirlwind. And it was a lot of new information that we had to make a lot of really big decisions very quickly. Um, so I learned a lot, but it was also grieving and trying to take care of my kids' grief and my family. So it was a lot of, to process at once. And, um, you know, going through all of that at, as, as at the same time that you're trying to provide care for someone you love very much, um, is something that I just don't want other people to have to experience. So planning a able to talk about death is just something I get excited about, which sounds weird. Mm -hmm. That thing, like when you go through it and you go, wow, I never knew this was a part of life and people do it all the time and they live through it. And I want to, know how to live through it. I want to survive and I want my kids to thrive. Um, well, it sounds, and, and we'll get into more, but it sounds like your excitement maybe is sharing what you went through and maybe helping other people go through it. Um, but I, how many kids did you have between the two of you? Um, so we have three daughters and my girls were all um, in primary school, so just starting middle school and elementary, um, finishing up first grade was the youngest. Very young, and you all went south during that whole nine months? Yeah, so we basically, in Juneau, you know, as you know, and many people here know, the options are limited treatment. So we were sent to Virginia Mason and... of decisions about how he wanted to approach this terminal diagnosis, whether he wanted treatment, um, ongoing interventions, and needing a radiation and chemo that they did not have here at the time. They were just starting to offer radiation here, but it was new enough that um, it made more sense to leave and rent an apartment and stay close to the hospital and just really focus on each other, which is what we did. 
for the first three months and then we came home um, and just tried to go, move through the days until um, he ended up entering hospice. But there, there were so many things to think about at that time because I had built a business that was thriving and a lot of it relied on the fact that my husband had benefits. He had healthcare. And so we were watching that tick away with, you know, the leave and the family leave dwindling and people were donating time to us. Um, but I realized that I needed to step up. So I pursued a job and I got an offer at the university and it was it was kind of a serendipitous because in my interview I was very open and I just said look um I have to tell you that my husband was diagnosed with a terminal illness he's home on hospice and I just feel like you should know that um and I left and my boss called me and she said can we meet for coffee and she sat down and she said, do you know my story? And I hadn't. She said, well, my husband's on hospice and he's terminal. Um, and I want to offer you this job, but I want you to think about it. Um, and it didn't take me long to think about it. We both lost our husbands that year. I was employed just a month before he lost his health insurance. So I had to, I had to step up pretty quickly and just um, be kind of a manager aside from being able to be a supportive wife, I had to figure out the best choices for finances, the best choices for his care. He had, because of the treatment and the brain injury, he, he had limited ability to really, um, his cognitive abilities were dwindling toward the end. So it was really hard to understand what he wanted um, for his end of life care. And that was a really horrible, desperate thing. To, to know his issues. Right. Um, it, it was interesting because I think when people go through this, you might think you have an idea of what you want. And then the reality of it changes your perspective. And I, I think I've read about this and seen it in other cases. There was a woman, Brittany Maynard, who had a brain tumor and, and, um, chose to be in Oregon to what is what is the term they used for that end of life suicide but they have a, another term as well but yeah so she chose that path right but I it ask, uh, Shauna actually going back there was this nine-month period and obviously at the beginning you were looking at treatment and I assumed hoping that he was going to overcome at what point in that was it, okay, we're at, this is going to be terminal and what do we do? That was the tricky part too. You've, okay. you, you know, one thing that I think I did not recognize or realize is that in that, and when I referenced Brittany Maynard, it's because your mind, you, you changed, your approach to things changes. And then there's this denial that happens. I felt conviction right away. And then I, that this was going to happen. I just knew it. And I felt a lot of guilt for that because we had a faith that said, you know, if you think positive thoughts, if you pray, this can change. And we had people 
saying that right up to the end, which was very confusing for my kids and for me. Um, and then there's, you know, family dynamics. We had family who, even if my husband stated his wishes, you know, there, there were other people involved who had their opinions, you know, and when you care so much about people, you're going to have strong feelings about what they want and what you want for them. So there are a lot of dynamics that you have to manage and navigate. Um, he, I think, went through a denial and to this day, I'll never quite know if that was related to the tumor in his brain or if he was going through that denial. Um, there are so many things that happen and it was a horrible time. It was, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about it because it was such a difficult thing to be the care provider, the wife, the decision maker, navigating family, navigating finances. Um, so when my boss offered me that job, she, one of the first things she said to me was, you know, they can't take your house. And so, you know, not only am I looking at the end of my life as I know it with my husband, but somehow I have to think about finances and, you know, that's the last thing I want to think about. I don't care about anything at that point, but you, you realize really quickly, you know, life does go on. Um, a lot of stuff to process. There's that feeling. And then there's the guilt of not being more positive. Sometimes I wished I was in denial <laughs> so that I could not be waiting for that next thing to happen. Tell me some more about the, the decision making about his care. I think I cut you off a bit um, to go back, but you said earlier that it was, you, you want to make these decisions, but it just doesn't play out how you expect. for everything. If I said that correctly, you want to elaborate some more on that decision making? Yeah, I think, I think there's so much that comes into play with reality versus what you want to believe. And so even though he had a terminal diagnosis, I think the big impact was how it was shared with us and how we responded. And I feel like early on, he accepted it more readily. And as time went on, things changed. We didn't have wills in place. And I had gotten a Susie Orman box like this, ready to go fill it out yourself years prior. You know, it's something we always talk about, but we were young. We had gotten life insurance, but I kept it really minimal because we were young. We were active. Really being in that moment at that time, it's really hard because there is no definitive black and white decision. There are these little things that you have to consider along the way, and it's hard to see what the big picture is or the right answer is. We didn't know if he would be um, alive in one year or seven years. Um, and so it was really living day by day, um, but not having that plan in place ahead of time. We talked about things that we would want generally. But I approached it and I tried to, to get it out of him. And I think there is a lot of denial about getting sick. Um, and his particular illness 
it kind of hits your body in different places at different times. And it was a fast nine month process of kind of his body just kind of breaking down. But he, I think he didn't want to feel like he was making a decision and about his end of life, because I think that made it too real. Um, when we talked about hospice, I think he felt like it, the moment you entered hospice, that meant you were going to die. Um, so it was really hard for me to not have those specifics in place because there were so many decisions to make um, about what kind of medications he wanted, um, how many interventions. And those, those decisions, you make them on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's hard when you don't have a con an idea established already about what someone wants. And that's something I think I see a lot. I think that's one of the more painful pieces of it. I feel like I just don't want people to suffer the way that I did and the way my kids did. And maybe it's naive, but I just think if you can have as many things in place, if you can talk about things, then when that time comes, you can focus on the rest of it, the time together, the relationship. You think that you, and I bet you have, set aside more specific wishes now that you've gone through this experience? Because I think every kind of prolonged or those the decision-making, there are so many types of decisions that I think it's challenging for myself, for clients I advise in terms of really getting detailed. And it sounds like that would have been really helpful for you. And I wonder if you're able to, you think others can, can reach that point. Um, and if you think had you and him sat down ahead of time, do you think that would have provided more clarity? I think it would have. I think a lot of people that I, I talked to would say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be dead. You know, I don't, they think in terms of like, like I said, black and white. You're alive one minute, you're dead the next kind of, yeah. Not that the slow progression, but yeah, it would be much easier to sit down and talk about it. But of course, that's not our reality. And I think right now it's kind of like, balancing a budget. And ironically, I don't have formally written. I have some things written down, but it's that thing that you think you have time for. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in fact, it was after I listened to the event that I said, oh, I need to get this plan in place, especially when you're older and things get a little more complicated with your life. Now I have a blended family, you know, back to this, this idea of making a plan, I think my goal is just to get people to talk in our process of my children watching their dad um, go through his treatment and his um, slow progression into just being completely immobile. Um, they talked about it. And after he died, my then... 12 year old, I think she looked at me and she said, you know, if, if I get what dad got, I don't want treatment. Now, would she feel that way today? 
that's another thing. You have to keep having the conversation because things change. And I know a lot of people might say, oh, well, I don't want a feeding tube. But maybe if you have a stroke and the rest of you functions well and there are certain senses that you enjoy, you might say, wait, maybe I'm going to change my mind. Um, but I think just having the conversation is a good start. Yeah. And you referenced a talk that we did recently, Van Sanders and myself for the foundation. And I'll link to that in the show notes um, for anyone with some, we got into a good conversation about the, the documents, but then some other options. And I think you hit it is, is having those conversations. I encourage that even though, like you said, it's not it's nuanced, but having some idea of what the person would want. Um, I think you can get more through conversation than writing, um, except for some very specifics. Uh, but are there other resources that helped you, Shauna, going through the, the end for um, coping with anything that helped you navigate all that you went through? Yeah, at the time, um, glioblastoma, the brain cancer my husband had, was very, still pretty rare. And maybe I hear it more now because I'm aware of it, but I didn't know anybody through what we did. So having support groups, um, I found a support system on social media that Facebook that um, I'm connected to those people to this day. And I think that helped me. I know my mom went through heart surgery and she still has a support group. Anyone who's gone through something like that. So um, I, we have a widow group here in Juneau that meets and um, just being around people who are like-minded. One thing that really hit me was the impact of grief um, on, on everyday life. And that's something that friends come to me with. I have a friend who recently lost both of her parents. One had dementia and one had a sudden heart attack. And she's struggling with being exhausted and brain fog and, and trying to have joy for her daughter. And it's overwhelming for her, but, but that's also normal. Um, so the first thing I did was I sought out a doctor who was hospice focused. I had volunteered for, um, uh, as a photographer, I, I volunteered my services for families who lost infants at birth. Um, my family growing up, my, my dad was a firefighter, my sister's a medic. So, you know, end of life wasn't something completely new to me, but mm -hmm. so I knew when he was dying, I knew I wanted someone who is going to help us accept that rather than give us the 0.5% chance of making it through, you know, approach. I, I didn't want that piece. I had too much to deal with to, to just pretend that everything was going to be okay. So hospice was really important to me, which is why I'm in, on the board now because I was handed the book that we have a second edition of that we also shared for this event. Um, we'll dive into that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that. Doctor, you said that, you sought out a doctor who would 
be real with you under you know about preparing for the end was that someone through hospice then or was was this both you did hospice and the, this doctor I didn't really know about the hospice options until I had two and he had a doctor that I had not really been familiar with but when he came home after the first diagnosis I just didn't feel real comfortable with um, the approach that he had. It just didn't seem very warm and welcoming. He didn't feel like he um, really wanted to include the family in this process. It was very medical and it just didn't feel like the right fit. So um, I think just through talking with close friends and family nurses I knew, um, I, I knew that we needed to find someone who was a little more compassion focused. And so I found Dr. Urata at Valley Medical. And that was one of the best decisions, just having someone who is realistic. And for me, I needed that. I needed someone who was very honest and frank. And, and he also helped us navigate family because it's amazing what your brain does for denial when you're facing these decisions, we would sit down with a doctor and we would walk out of a room and I would think, well, wow, that was really bad news. And my husband's wife would, my husband's mom would say, Oh, that was so great. I'm, you know, I feel so positive now, but I, there, there's a lot of hope and he's going to make it through. Um, well, there's so much to navigate. Yeah, and that was Dr. Yurata, you mentioned, who's also on the board of the Foundation for End of Life Care. He is, yeah. Great. So let's move and talk about the foundation and tell me what, just generally what the foundation does. It's a nonprofit for starters, correct? It is, and it's an all-volunteer board. It's really small. Um, it was established through actually the the gift of one major um, benefactor, Verna Kerrigan, who gave to uh, a handful of community organizations after she passed away. We, we have lots of contributors and support from our community, um, but she's, her, her gift established this foundation after, and she did that after she had received hospice care. Um, so the mission of the foundation is really to support people in the community by um, supporting end of life services. So that includes hospice care, bereavement care and community education. The hope is that we can always assure that hospice is an option for people here and on, in surrounding communities. It's not something that the hospital provides right now, Catholic Community Services is um, the only provider of this. And, and we've talked about hospice. Can you tell any, any listeners who might be unfamiliar with it what hospice is? Yeah, so hospice is basically um, not an intervention. It's an approach to end of life that supports and create, provides palliative care. So it provides comfort, care, and um, gives patients really the option to, to die at home, to go through end of life um, without 
strong interventions. And often it's, it's the approach you take when maybe you don't want all the treatment, you don't want to be in a hospital on medications. So it's not only for older people. And they do say that some people can graduate out of hospice. It's rare. It's not a death sentence. It's just a support. And so you have professional care providers um, who are trained doctors, nurses, and palliative care and hospice um, who can provide these services to you. It's really compassionate. And in this community, it, it helped me bring my husband home so we could have more time together as a family. And he was able to be comfortable. He was able to get services and equipment and medical um, aids, you know, something to help him in the shower, something to help him in and out of the bed when it came to that. Um, and people just to be there to provide pain relief when he needed it. Um, and just help us figure out how to best support him. Yeah, thank you. I kind of put you on the spot with the hospice question, but I love your example too. And my grandfather died a year ago in February, so about a year and a half. And he was in a nursing home, but kind of a long-term, maybe not your usual, and hospice was able to come in and, and just an, a great organization in my experience. And they also provided grief services after he passed, which I'm not sure that they do that here, but I thought that was a neat touch. I appreciated, um, appreciated that. So back to the foundation, you said um, supporting hospice, supporting services for end of life. Yeah. Anything you want to add? I know there's a book that you mentioned. Do you want to talk about that? There is a book. Um, one of our founding board members, Virginia Palmer, Ginny, created a book after her husband died, and he actually planned very well for her in his end of life. Um, and then, and she realized how much easier he made it for her when she had friends going through their losses and she just wanted to make sure um, that people had the education and the awareness in place to be able to approach the end of life and deal with all of the things that you deal with. There are little things, constant paperwork, um, things that can be avoided if you plan ahead a little bit um, that you're not leaving to your loved ones to to process and deal with. So she created a book and it's called When You're Not Here or uh, When I'm Not There. <laughs> we have two iterations, the first edition and the second. Um, and it's really neat because it kind of gives you a, a workbook that you can fill out just to share basic things like what are your passwords to your social media or your bank accounts? Um, and you know, you need to store it in a safe place. But all of those things that we have now that people wouldn't know what to do with um, if, if we were gone tomorrow. So it, it's a central place to, to hold all those. And, and it also has information that helps you just discuss things, the ideas of how you want to approach your end of life, what, what you would like for 
um, your advanced directives or your, your care, what you would want afterwards. And for me, it was kind of like what to expect when you're expecting. We prepare so much for introducing people into the world. <laughs> and so often it's funny because we are very stubborn people in this country. We tend to have very strong opinions about things, but we leave this really big experience kind of to chance. Um, and the book really addresses even little details like what does hospice look like? And if you do have someone at home and they die, then what, what do you do? Um, who do you call? What, what are your rights? So it's a really great guide. It's based on Alaska statute. So it's applicable for people in our state. Um, it is very it, comprehensive, I, as you've touched on, but I'm just surprised at how it, it's great. Everyone should should read it. And it's very conversational. I feel like it's an easy read. Um, so I have it just sitting around, you know, you can pick through it and think about things. Um, and where can listeners find a copy if they don't have one already? Hearthside uh, Books carries the book. And so you can get it at Hearthside. You can order it through their website. We have it on our website. And right now we're happy to share it with anyone who wants to give us their mailing address. Um, our foundation has a small endowment. Um, and you'd see on the website, people can contribute to it. But we use that just exactly for the, these sorts of um, resources. So they can go on our website. And we're happy to provide a copy. And we'll link to it. But what's the website? Foundation End of Life Care AK.org. Kind of a long one. And to reach out, give a mailing address and request the book, would it be good to use the contact us on the website? Or is there another way they should reach somebody? I think contact us is the best thing. And you know, with these web addresses, you can also Google Foundation for End of Life, Juneau, Alaska. It'll pop right up. But that portal right now is the best way to contact us. And your website also has some other resources available about grief, what to do after a death, some really good information. Is there anything you wanted to add to highlight year on the podcast? Yeah, we, we, our aim is to have an event every year, at least one event a year. And some of them are really big events. We um, had Jessica Zitter come in, experts in, in end of life in hospice. Um, we also have like, we did recently our virtual event. So we try to do an event each year and, and that would be posted a calendar on our website. And um, I think what I feel like has really happened is we've really expanded end of life from just focusing on seniors, elderly, um, to really the whole an intergenerational approach. So my goal is to do that, to pro provide more grief support um, for families and youth, because, you know, especially in this community and especially after COVID, we know that it impacts everyone. Um, so I, I guess I like to think that the more information we have, the more tools we have, the easier it is for us to cope. Um, 
and get through that. And it is, I think the hardest thing I think to go through is to have to make decisions for people you love. So Ginny will tell you, you know, she knew exactly what her husband wanted. And there is such a peace in that. And yet my, my uh, partner right now, his, his mother had a stroke suddenly, and it was a really painful process to try to make decisions that were going to impact her health and quality of life. And, um, you know, second guessing yourself is something that's really hard for people when they're facing that. Yes. So, (laughs) uh, talk to people about it, uh, record your wishes Mm -hmm. and, and that takes thinking about it, which takes learning about it. And I think your book is a good resource. Mother highlights on the website. There's some good, great book recommendations on your website, the foundation for end of life care. AK.org. And it's just to start. I feel like that's a good place to wrap up. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add or anything you want to ask of the audience? I, I just want to say it doesn't have to be a scary, sad thing. There are some really precious moments that can come at the end um, when you're really facing the loss of someone, um, you know, the time is really special and dear and sacred. And so getting a lot of the details out of the way is just a gift. And, and, you know, it'll, it'll lead to other things like more formal decisions, but it's, it's just amazing how many wonderful people there are in this community to support you. And that really helped get me through. Is there anything you want to add? I kind of glossed over. We talked about help for you, why you were going through, but any any resources you want to highlight about grief and or or just speaking from experience, something that helped you deal with. I don't want to say deal with, I guess, but navigate. Oh yeah, I'm still navigating it, and I still lean on anyone I can. I looked for people I saw in my community who had gone through it providers. Right now, Bartlett Hospital is is expanding their mental health and support systems. Um, so the health providers in this town and the community um, are there to support us. I wish I had more details, but uh, really reaching out to foundations like mine um, and services like the hospital and um, the medical clinics here. I think more, that was one thing that was a goal of this foundation was to bring awareness to medical providers about hospice and palliative care options, instead of thinking that everything has to be intervention. And that's a whole nother conversation. Um, But I think we're there. I think we're in a place where many, many healthcare providers really do want to empower patience. And this is really what it is. It's about empowering yourself to make decisions for yourself that, that, um, you want to experience at the end of life. 
And that's a, that's really a relatively new approach because it used to be in our country that, you know, a doctor has to tell you exactly what to do and the way it's going to be. And they make all the decisions, but really it's, it's changed. And that's what I think I appreciate about hospice. And, and you know, people like, like you and Vance, when we had the event, getting to talk about really enabling and empowering other people, helping people understand what they want. Um, and you provide those services too. So I think there are a lot of great support networks here. Yeah, but such a, that's why I cream creating a podcast that can help navigate. So thank you so much for sharing your story for people. I think that'll resonate with a lot of people for talking about the organization and sharing some of your resources. And I'm really excited to share this with the community. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a tough thing to go through and, and you don't have to do it alone. Great. Thanks for listening to the What's Next podcast. That's all for this week. You can find show notes for this show and prior episodes and future episodes at lizsmithlaw.com. And if you're interested in scheduling a meeting with us to find out what your next step would be for your estate planning, visit us at bit.ly slash mygiftfromlsl. Again, that's bit.ly slash mygiftfromlsl. Or find the link at lizsmithlaw.com. We look forward to seeing you again right here, same place, same time, two weeks from now. Thank you so much.